0: This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation.
1: You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. There's always an answer. The joy is in finding. One of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process.
0: The way we live our life has nothing to do with the presentation sequence at trial.
1: As trial lawyers, we pick up and move on and keep going.
0: You're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case.
1: Whatever you think about, you create.
2: Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the guts to try case after case after case.
1: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan.
0: Today on Trial Law Nation, John Fisher is joining us. Uh, John is a great trial lawyer out of New York, specializing in medical negligence cases. He also is the author of two books that uh, everyone who owns a law firm should get, uh, The Power of a System, and then The Law Firm of Your Dreams." So he's not only built a great law firm, but he's also uh, advising other people on how they can build great law firms. And uh, it inspired me enough where I wanted to have him on. So, John, how are you doing today?
2: I'm awesome. Thank you. A privilege to be on your show.
0: What's well, a privilege to have you? Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, I, I started out as a, the son of a real estate lawyer. And uh, one day I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life after law school. And it turns out about a 30 year old black male comes in my office. And he tells me a story about he had been horribly brain damaged in a bus wreck and no lawyer in town would go near his case. There were all kinds of problems with the case. And, uh, you know, as, as I got talking to him, I said, Michael, uh, I don't know anything about personal injury law, but it sounds to me like you've got a great case. So I started researching traumatic brain injury, personal injury law. And as I got into it, I'm like, wow this is fascinating. I am, I was totally ensconced by the whole thing. So I got more and more into it. And my wife was like, this is all you do now. You don't actually do anything else. And I'm like, yeah, because my weekends and my nights, everything was totally absorbed by it. And that case ended up going to trial. It settled for not a very good amount, honestly, after about a week of trial but I was sold at that point. This is what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, which was not personal injury law. It was serving the most severely disabled people and having a profound impact on their life. So fast forward roughly 15 years, I'm representing a trucker from South Carolina who was horribly injured in a two truck collision that happened about a half mile south of the Canadian border. And throughout the time that I represented this 30-year-old guy, his name was Dale, uh, I'd go visit him in South Carolina, in Graniteville, South Carolina, and he would never be able to recognize who I am. He'd just would oh. stare at the TV all day long. And his wife would sort of guide me through, but I was like, he doesn't even know who I am. He was so profoundly brain damaged. So I went through a litigation. We did tons of work. And it turns out the result was okay, but not great. And at the end of the case, he flew up to Albany, New York, where my office was. And just to basically finalize the settlement. And I walked into the conference room just to say goodbye to this nice guy, Dale. And he gets up out of his chair. He walks over to me and gives me a huge bear hug. And he's squeezing the life out of me. <laughs> and I'm like, man. And then he whispers in my ear, I love you. And I'm wow. like, man, that is, that, that's why I practice law to have a profound impact on the lives of the severely disabled. So, I'm not in personal injury law to to help people with a broken arm or or a, a twisted ankle or something like that. I want to have I want to represent people who are either their their estate if they've died, which is most of our cases, brain damage, par- paralysis, loss of limb, blindness. So, it's really those categories. So, it's kind of easy to figure out the number one criteria for accepting the case are those five criteria. And so we have a very small caseload. We have 28 active files. We The, the budget that we have in our firm is small. I absolutely love it, though. It's like I look forward to practicing every day. And I, to this day, I can't believe that people will pay me money to do what, what we do. So I love it so much.
0: That's awesome. You know, I've, I've always had the fantasy of having a docket of just catastrophically injured are our death cases. And I've always just had the maybe limiting belief or just fear that, you know, I've developed these great referral relationships, but the service that I provided, the deal I've always had is if you get one of those cases, you give it to me, but I'll also handle your, your mid-size, you know, your hundred, uh, nine hundred thousand dollar case as well as your, you know, seven-figure case. Um, and so we have a little bit, we still have a small docket per lawyer, but we still have more dockets. How do you get a sustainable business because of the people I've known that have tried to do this, a few have made it, but a lot of, you know, they've got three or four cases and then they lose one or one gets continued. They run out of money. I mean, how do you get a sustainable business model of just, you know, big damage cases?
2: Well, Michael, it's not that we turn away the small and moderate cases, but we just don't handle them. We refer them to attorneys. And I explain to them, I would do a crappy job with your case. If it's a broken arm, broken leg, something like that. I said, we would not do a good job for you, but I know this attorney, Michael, who will do a phenomenal job for you. And then what happens is we split the legal fee. So we get a portion of the fee and everything works out great. The the truth of the matter is if you do catastrophic injury law, you can't let the little stuff in the door because if you do, every minute is taking away time from your catastrophic cases. And catastrophic cases means Man, I'm just absorbed in them. I'm spending yeah. every single minute on these cases, and we're pushing them all the way through. Every single case in our that we in our inventory gets graded A, B, C, D, and that's based upon estimated settlement value. And so we're trying to focus on the highest value cases, yeah, and, and basically weed out everything. But on occasion, I think we have one one case where it doesn't really meet any of the criteria. It's just the right thing to do every once in a while. Right. So directly behind me on the that you can see in blue and gold, those are the, the the purpose values and mission of our law firm. The purpose stopping medical injustice. And there's four core values and then there's a mission for our law firm and this guides. This is the bible or the constitution that guides everything that we do with everyone who works here. And that's Basically controls us, and so yeah. I know Michael, if you come to me and something horrendous happened, but the money might not be that great, I'm like, you know what? our purpose is stopping medical injustice, and this is just the right thing to do, regardless of the money and so sometimes on principle, I'll accept cases. one thing um and our core values speak to this: we never agree to a confidential settlement period, never have, never will. Wow. That is one of our four core values. And the reason, Michael, is I believe that what we do in this area of law is not som- simply compensate people for an injury. That's a small part of what we do. What we do is we improve the quality of care for other people in the future so yeah. that the same thing won't happen again. So, real quick, Michael, I was for years, I've handled train litigation, crossing litigation. And and there was a crossing in New York State that was the most dangerous crossing for in railroads uh, for over thirty years. It was horrendous. People were getting hurt and killed at this crossing all the time. And by all the time, I mean maybe once in, in a three week span, they had three collisions between a train and a tractor trailer. Wow! And so I got involved in this case. And I handled all of the litigation relating to this very dangerous grade crossing that was involving tractor trailers and trains, right? And I, at the end of these cases, I tried one of the cases, the rest of them settled. I became pretty disillusioned about the process because I realized, you know what? The crossing still is there. The people are going to get killed. I haven't accomplished anything. So I got money for people, but is that really what the practice of law is about? And then around Christmas, somewhere around Christmas, this is years ago. I'm driving past the cross. This is out in the middle of nowhere, the country. You, no one would even go by this place. I'm just happened to be driving by there, and I notice there's a booth at the crossing that looks like a porta potty. And I'm like, what is that? So I stop. I get out, and as I get out, somebody, like a some guy, comes running out with a baton. He's like above his head. He's swinging it around, and he's like, "What the hell are you doing here?" He's like, "Scaring me away." I'm like, "Whoa, who are you?" And it turns out, Michael, that that was a crossing guard that was put at the crossing to stop traffic whenever a train was coming. So that one simple thing would stop collisions. But the story gets a lot better because six months later, I'm going by the same crossing and I'm noticing the crossing is shut down. It's absolutely raised all the way to the ground. I keep driving a quarter mile north of the crossing. There is a brand new crossing that they they installed to replace the other one. It went from being the most dangerous grade crossing in the state of New York to one of the safest grade crossings in the state of New York. And I know in my mind that that is because of the litigation and the impact that we had in forcing them to cough up money. Because if we had not done that, it would have been business as usual. And because of the lawsuits, there are people who are alive and have not been hurt or killed because of our work. And that means everything to me. So Absolutely. when people talk bad about our profession, they need to hear stories like that.
0: I agree 100 percent. And it is it does feel good on those times when you do see a change that you help help force someone to make that uh, they could have made on their own. But with, frankly, for corporations, money talks. And if it gets too expensive to litigate, they will eventually do the right thing and protect people. Uh, no, Absolutely. You said you have four core values. Do you mind uh, sharing the other three?
2: Yeah, we, we only represent the injuries of people who have been catastrophically injured. Uh, we are brutally honest with our clients. We do not accept cases that have questionable merit, and we will never agree to a confidential settlement. So those are the four core values. Our purpose is stopping medical injustice. The mission of our law firm was to get 500 referral partners by October 19th of 2017. But we've changed that to get 1,000 referral partners by October 19th of 2023. A referral partner is an attorney who refers us at least one case.
0: You know, that's great. You know, we actually have, um, and I don't know where where you got inspired to do this. I know there's a lot of different books and teachers out there. I got mine from uh, works of a guy named Patrick Lincioni uh, oh, yeah. But, you know, him. our, you know, we our, our law firm exists to provide a special forces level representation to people who are hurt Our he, he has three core values under his system. So we constantly seek to learn and improve, we share what we learn, and we fight hard without being a holes. Um, and you know, what we do is litigate personal injury cases for plaintiffs, and we have a strategy for success. Uh, but I do like your really concrete goal. I want 500 referring lawyers by this day, rather than a, we want to provide a higher level. We want to, I I like that. I'm going to, you know, I I need to, I need to finish reading your books because I, where did you get that?
2: Where did I get that? Well, uh, well, this (laughs) gong that you're looking at behind me, um, we sell, we only strike that gong when we get a new referral partner. That's an attorney who refers us a case. Yeah. So when we get a case, I, I give the mallet, to one of our team, they strike the gong and it has a beautiful sound. But where I got this was an epiphany that I had as a young attorney was that my clients were not injury victims. Uh, my clients are attorneys who can send us a steady stream of cases. Yeah, and so because if you in catastrophic injury law, if somebody has a case, they're not. It's not a good chance that they're going to have another one, or that they're going to have a family member or friend. Because this stuff doesn't happen that often. But if you have a referring attorney who can send you a steady stream of referrals of these type of cases, then you're in business. Because then instead of sporadically getting referrals, you're getting them every single week, every day. And the key, Michael, is we currently have 461 referral partners, our firm. But the reality is it's really about three or four law firms that send us almost all of our work and but it's steady that work the rest of it's sporadic but the three or four it's gold so what we do is we go right to the top of the food chain and by that i mean the biggest best law firms that don't do the type of law that we do and those firms it's a pipeline they will send us work we have to go through a lot of low quality crappy cases to get the good ones but that's the nature of our business and we'll take cases that no other law firm will The case that I mentioned where two tractor trailers collided just south of Canada, no no lawyer in the state of New York wanted to go near that case. The liability to them looked like it sucked. But to me, it looked like this will be fun. (laughs) So so I got into the case. We, We brought all of our reconstruction people up there. It was a nighttime wreck in the freezing cold near Canada. We reconstructed the accident under simulated the conditions four different times. And each time I screwed it up a little bit, <laughs> and then it cost a fortune to do all this. Yeah. And eventually did we get it exactly right? Not really. Uh, it, Cause there's always some little flaw in the reconstruction. That's the problem, but we, but the case settled client was great. And you know, it's yeah. a young attorney. I'm a young attorney given all these big cases, Michael, my first case in court, I'm just two years out of law school. The senior partner of my firm, I work for a nationally prominent catastrophic injury law firm. And and the senior partner says to me, you want to try your first case? I said, sure, why not? Let's do it. And so he he gave me six days before the trial, a brain damage, cerebral palsy, medical malpractice case. Wow. Now, granted, I've got no idea what I'm doing. So I'm going there and the trial, the senior partner says, don't worry about it. I'll be in the courtroom at counsel table, sitting with you. We're going to be fine. You'll be fine. If there's a problem, I'm there for you. This guy never showed up, oh, and great. so I'm in court, a young kid. The, all the attorneys are about thirty or forty years older than I'm the, on the defense side, and I'm like, "What the hell do I do now?" So what I did was there is a recipe for success. I read transcripts of trials by one of who I consider the master trial attorney in this in the country, Thomas Moore, in New York City. And Thomas Moore, what I found out by reading his transcripts, he tries a case exactly the same way every single time. The words are the same. Everything about it's the same. So I'm sitting there. I've got his transcripts with me. as well. I'm just reading word for word. What he says. And the judge comes flying off the stand at a break and he goes, the judge's bench, he goes, that is the most brilliant questioning I have ever heard. And I'm like, yeah, judge, I got it. This is easy for me. But the reality, I was just reading a transcript by another (laughs) attorney. (laughs) But, you know, Michael, the funniest thing is we get done with that trial. The only trial in my, the only case in my career where I've recovered more than the insurance coverage uh, was that case. And so I get done. And one of the jurors afterwards comes up to me because I always talk to them afterwards. And they said, I have to tell you, that one defense attorney was absolutely brilliant. And I said, oh, because it was a study in contrast. One attorney was brilliant. The other attorney was totally inept. And I said, oh, you mean this guy? And they go, no, 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 the other guy. And I'm like, the other guy was horrible. Are you kidding me? But see, the point of that is the way juries jurors perceive us is so completely different from the way that we perceive things. Yeah. And that's the reason why, Michael, early in my career, I began doing focus groups to, to find out not what the result of the, the trial would be, but what are the questions that I'm not asking that I should be asking. So I've spent a large part of my career helping other lawyers and other law firms do focus groups to help benefit their biggest cases.
0: That's awesome. Um, I want to just go back for a minute to your core values. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but they fascinate me. Uh, how did you come up with your core values? What was the process you did?
2: Mm. Well, it started at a mastermind in Chandler, Arizona. I was at Infusionsoft. They exposed me to the idea of purpose, values, and mission, and I was completely sold by it. And so I decided there to sit down for three days with the, the leadership team at Infusionsoft, and we tried to put something together. What I found out, Michael, if you read my book, The Law Firm of Your Dreams, that the purpose, values, and mission that I originally had changed completely over the next two years, because I Uh realized there's a critical difference between aspirational values, meaning what we think we should be doing, and real values, which is what are you currently doing? So for example, Michael, if I put in our original core values where we treat our clients like family, that is total BS. We do not do that. Now, there are some clients who I'm really close with, but there's some clients I can't stand. So it really is a,
0: a that concept. sounds like that sounds like family to me.
2: <laughs> well, it is. You know, uh, that's in, the reality in real
0: life, but yeah, uh, there are
2: some clients who are very difficult, and some of them just you know trust us and and love yeah. our work. And the reality is, so I said, let's get rid of all the the aspirational values and let's focus on what do we really do. We never agree to confidential settlements. That is true. Yeah, we are brutally honest with our clients. That's true. I tell our clients in every single case, you could lose this case. I have no guarantees, and the reality is i'm going to do my best for you. The other thing is we only handle catastrophic injury law oh, that's true, and then the third thing is we do not accept cases that have questionable merit, and that's true we If there's a questionable case, we let someone else handle it. We don't want to go near that case.
0: yeah we had to do the same thing between the aspirate you know we when we were coming up with our core values and uh, Lintonia has a really neat thing, which is come up with the employees that are like the absolute best golden employees, the ones you're so glad you have, and list all the reasons why they are who they are. Then you list all the people who have made your law firm a better place by leaving in the last two years. Yes. And all the reasons why they weren't the right fit and you know start getting it. But we really had that struggle. Like there are things we wanted to have as our core values, but if we go back and say that this is who we are, we're not telling the truth. And you can't go tell your team this is who we are when they're all going to walk in the room like oh, that's bullshit. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's so important to like you said, that difference between the, what we, where we want to be at the end of the, you know, as we develop in this process, where we want to get to and where, we, where, what we really are today, you know, because if you, if it's fake, if your court, like if you said, we never agreed a confidential settlement and then every third settlement you did, that's, that wouldn't be true. And, and your employees would start, the whole uh, mission changes. Um, so, mean, Michael, no let come, me
2: give you an example of how this affects our law firm. Yeah. A couple of years ago, we had a settlement and I went away after the settlement and I come back and one of our paralegal said, oh, you know, by the way, the defense asked for confidentiality in that settlement. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Oh, I can't believe this. And I, I start to get really upset because they knew the terms of the settlement said we will not agree to confidentiality. And paralegal said, no, 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 no. Don't worry about it. I told that attorney that if they want confidentiality, there's no deal. And he quickly backed off. Wow. And I'm like, perfect. So that's how a, a core value influence how you act. Yeah. We are brutally honest with our clients. We try to tell it to them straight. If they don't have a case, we tell them that in a very delicate, soft, compassionate way. Because being honest, rather, rather than saying, oh, our law firm has a conflict. We can't represent this case. We'll say, you know what? I'm sorry. It's just not the right case for us. To, I, I hate to say this, but it's a business decision. But I'm going to refer you an attorney who will do a great job with this case, and they appreciate the honesty. So that's sort of how we use these. I feel Michael, the other failure of most businesses when it comes to core values is they make them too long. Like if you've got ten or twelve core values, oh, nobody's going to remember any of it. I but agree. if you have three or four, and Michael, here's a test: when we hire someone. They've got to know those core values. We will ask them at the interview, recite our core values. And during our daily huddle, which is a meeting we have most days, we'll ask, you know, have you used a core value, demonstrate something. And the reality is if you have a st- a team member who does not remember your core values or struggles with your purpose that is not a good person for your law firm.
0: Yeah. What I love about the story you told with the paralegal who just automatically said, you know, not, well, let me go run it by the attorney, just automatically said, we don't do that. We don't agree to confidentiality at this firm. Uh, is it just shows how when you run the business right as a business, it allows the law firm to run the way that the law firm, you know, I used to struggle with, if I spent a bunch of time trying to run a business, how am I going to practice law? And what I finally learned, and part of it was just, guilt over running a successful business. I don't know. That's another long story over, you know, about self-worth and guilt and whether people should make money or not, which I had to get past. But uh, what I've realized is when my business runs well, when I'm not always dealing with a crisis, when things are just happening without my involvement, I can really dig deep on those cases and I can really become a better lawyer.
2: No, absolutely. Uh, Michael, I once paid a guy who was one of the leading marketing consultants in the country. A lot of money, like 10 grand. And he said, I'll give you two hours. I said, okay, I'll do it. Now, that was really stupid, but I did it anyway. <laughs> and so he and I met at a diner for about two hours. And he, he didn't tell me anything that I didn't already know. But for except for one thing, he said, those people who are the most successful in the law or any industry spend 50% or more of their time on business development. And it is so true. I've learned that the hard way. We don't get to practice what I was at a trial lawyers college regional and a young attorney, I'm sleeping in, you know, in a bedroom with a stranger, right? It's a young attorney. He's with me. And he's like, I can't wait. I'm just out of law school. I can't wait for my first trial. Um, this is going to be great. And he's like brimming with hope and vigor. Right. And I said to him, you know what? You don't get to be in the courtroom unless you master the business of law first, And so much more important than mastering trial skills, which is something very few people actually get to do. It's much more important to master the business of law, how to run a business, because if you don't do that, you're not going to be able to get to the courtroom. And so spending more than 50% of your time on business development, that's what the people do who make the most. It's just a matter of fact, I've learned that. And, And through the masterminds that I run nationally, I've learned the most successful lawyers, that's what they do. Uh, I love a courtroom. So it's, it's being, doing business development is not necessarily for everyone. I love being in a courtroom. I wouldn't give up the practice of law for anything, but they're not mutually exclusive because you have to do the business of law in order to practice law. You have to do both. And so I, you know, I've learned that. And that was what led to my first book called The Power of a System was I wanted to master the business of law and how to run marketing and managing a law firm. And what I did, Michael, this was a self-interest. I put this because these are my office policies in the power of a system. Everything we do, settlements, motions, discovery, pleadings, you name it, right here in the power of a system. And so what I thought, and when, when I was at a firm, I said, I'm writing a book about marketing and managing a law firm. They all started laughing hysterically at me. And they said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why on earth would you just give away everything that you know? And my thought was, well, because no one else is. No one else is just giving away everything that they know. And if I can help other lawyers own and operate their own law firm, we all win. And you know what, Michael, usually happens is I'll have a lawyer come to me with, let's say, a medical malpractice or a trucking wreck or something like that. And they'll say, you know, I don't want to refer this case to you. I just want to pick your mind. So can we have lunch? I'll say, fine. We'll have lunch. We'll be there for about two hours. And I'll tell them exactly what to do. No holds barred, everything A to Z. And at the end of the meeting, 90% of the time, they'll say, you know what? Why don't you just handle this case? And I'll just (laughs) get a it. (laughs) It happens every single time. Because when you give away everything that you know, I know it seems counterintuitive. It comes back to you in spades. Uh, that's what I found. And that's what led to my second book, which is called The Law Firm of Your Dreams. Everything I (laughs) I do with marketing and management is right here. And so rather than hide anything, just give it away. I mean, the reality, think about it, Michael. If I do a speaking event about internet marketing, my wife sat down with me after one of these and she said, you don't really give away everything that you know. And I say, of course I do. I tell everything because the reality is, a rising tide does lift all boats. I do believe that. But secondly, none of these lawyers are going to do any of this stuff anyway. I mean, the reality is they're not. I write all. I, I wrote recently a column about how to increase the number of your Google reviews. I don't know a soul who has taken any of my advice. But if you wanted to have five hundred or thousand reviews, I know how to, I, I can get it. Yeah. I know how to get it done, basically, and I can. And it can happen in less than a year. But it's not actually a lot of work either, but you have to follow some basic principles. So everything is doable in life. It depends on where you want to you know, dedicate your time.
0: And you can only implement so many new things at once. Exactly. i learned that the hard way. If you try to do 20 things at once, instead of saying we're going to do the most important or the best return on investment, and then the second most and the third most, and revisit every quarter what it should be, uh, you know, we may need to re-rank them because what we thought was the third most might not really be the third most when we look at it again.
1: Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to Delisi at CowanLaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at CallenLaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show.
0: You know, there's so many things we can do, but I I found I I used to try to do too many things. I try to implement 20 systems at once and then nothing would ever get followed.
2: Mm. Well, Michael, one thing I would say is if, if a young attorney came to me and said, what's the one thing I should do? If I have a thousand dollars, what should I do with that thousand dollars? I'd say, look, find a mastermind of high achieving attorneys who are doing things way bigger and better than you could ever imagine. Go to the mastermind, soak in their wisdom, learn from them and, and find out, leverage all of the mistakes and failures that they made. So you don't have to repeat the same thing. Now, how many people would take my advice? Virtually no one, but, but And this, everything that I do here goes back to that mastermind that I discussed in in Chandler, Arizona, back in 2013. I was in this crazy mastermind with high achieving business owners from across the world, Australia, United Kingdom, South Africa. And I'm in there, I'm like, man, I'm in the wrong room. I don't belong here. These people are like in a different stratosphere than me. And eventually what I realized over the course of three years, of three days was, this is something that everyone should be doing Absolutely. is hanging around people doing things bigger and better than you are so that you can leverage their wisdom and knowledge. And so few lawyers do that. So, Michael, I started in 2014 a national mastermind called Mastermind Experience, and it was to help other lawyers with the business of law. And that morphed into a weekly mastermind that's called Plaintiff's Elite, which is just for personal injury lawyers and what we do is we try to help people with the business of law. And so that's really, I think, the best thing I've ever done in my career.
0: You know, I, I agree with that 100%. Uh, just the, you know, what do they say? You're the average of the five people you hang out, you spend the most time with. And, you know, I, I purposefully, and they're not always formal masterminds. Sometimes it's just, you know, like we re- I recently had a group of five successful lawyers and we all met in one location just to spend two days sharing ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and we just, we got to bring two topics, uh, you know, on marketing or or management of of law firms and it was awesome. And some of them, you know, were about my level, but a couple were, you know, way above, I mean, you know, multiple eight figure recoveries every year and, you know, to learn from them. Uh, But the other thing I've learned through the podcast and just through, you know, networking with more and more successful people is, I think mindset, and you address in your book, mindset is a lot to do with success.
2: Yeah, mindset is is very uh important and, and realizing that you can't serve everyone, but you can change the world for those that you do represent. And so the mindset I think of a lot of attorneys is that they've got to take all the small cases and the little stuff to get the big ones. Yeah. I found out that's just not true. Uh, you don't have to do that. And what you do is when you just handle catastrophic injury cases you develop a reputation as the go-to person for catastrophic injury law. Complex litigation is your thing. And no, the people aren't necessarily going to come to you with the small dog bite cases, but when they've got the really big one of the quadriplegic, they're coming to you because they know you've got the resources and the team, and they're going to devote 100% of your time and energy to that case. So the mindset really is to understanding That the law is a business, that it's it's there to serve you, not the other way around. And when you want to go to the Caribbean and spend a week or a week in Maui, that you do that. You hang out with people who have your back, who are going to help you with your law firm. And that's a mastermind. But you know, I, I agree with you. Mindset really is everything. And I guess a little issue I had, I used to have a great paralegal in our firm who was dynamite, but she was really negative about everything and every single day at our daily huddle she would say something negative and it just wore me down i said life is too short to be around all this negativity all the time i feed off of people who have positive energy and so we we parted ways somewhat amicably but the reality is there's certain type of people i want to be around every day and others that i don't and it doesn't necessarily have to do with the skill level of the person either sometimes you, you know what it is? It's not just work ethic, skill, and and things of that nature. You have to like the people that you work with. That's so yeah. important. If you can't stand being around someone, that's a problem.
0: <laughs> you know, I've seen that with my partner, Mallory, who I've, I've watched Blossom since she was a one-year lawyer who had never done a deposition uh, when she came to work for me, uh, to now, you know, she's only 35, and I don't know how many... Uh, I know, I know she's only had one eight-figure recovery, but I don't know how many seven-figure recoveries. we have. I mean, I call her Million Dollar Mallory because I've lost count. Uh, nice. And a lot of it, I mean, yes, she's super smart. She works super hard, but it's her positivity. She always just brings a positive mindset, a positive energy to work every day. And it's about how we're going to get things done and doesn't spend time complaining or being negative or dwelling on the negative. And, you know, look, we don't, not every case makes. I mean, sometimes we work really hard for two years we go try a case and it's been a long time since i tried with mallory we got a red ribbon but every now and then you try a case and you come in second place and you know it means you get paid nothing and for me as a business owner it means i got to pay sometimes a significant amount of money for the privilege of having represented somebody uh for a few years and not recovering uh but you you know you just go you'll get them next time you can't let it you know you can't dwell on it you just have to work harder on the next one and uh or work smarter be of what case you take next time uh, you you just can't let it beat you up. You just got to get right back in there, and you know, same for you have a you have a tough client. You just have to, you know, well, I chose to take this client. My, I can either do my best, or I can go on and you know, withdraw from the representation. But I'm not going to sit there and whine about it.
2: Well, Michael, one of my uh, when I had my first mastermind back in 2014 in Chicago, I just the day before I'd had a defense verdict in a very rural conservative area of New Upstate New York. And I was kind of devastated by it. I was like, oh, man, this is horrible. A woman was paralyzed and the jury found in favor of the defense after like a 20 minute deliberation. And and this was a trial that I felt had gone, you know, in my favor. But I was just really devastated by I went to the mastermind and I told the other attorney says, you know, the other side offered high six figures uh, during the trial. And I I declined it. And And they were like, oh, well, that's stupid. You should have just taken whatever they offered. And then one of the attorneys from San Francisco came up to me and said, I want to tell you, I really appreciate what you did. Because attorneys like me, we settle cases for big numbers because of attorneys like you who are willing to try to verdict cases. And it's very rare in our profession that we have attorneys who are not only willing to go to court, but go to verdict with a case when there's a high six figure or even a seven figure offer on the table. That doesn't happen that much. But because we're willing to do that, the defense knows that they can't just throw a little bit of money at us and we're just going to take it. They know that we're willing to go to a verdict, even with a high six figure offer on the table. And so I think it's important for us to know that we do settle, we set settlement values. For every case, minimum settlement yeah. values for every single case we have. And that number is realistic. It's not some pie in the sky number. But we set it and we stick with it and we get the clients to sign off on it. And we say, This is the number that we're recommending. We're gonna do, we're gonna try to do a lot better than that number. But if, if this if it comes down to it, you give us authority for this. But if they don't come up to that number, I need your word that you will never accept anything less than that number and and if they so if the day comes for trial and there's an offer that's below that settlement value and the client wants to take it i say wait a minute remember we had a conversation about this i told you and you agreed that you'd never accept below that number now you're not going to go back on your word with me are you and usually like no 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 john just do your thing and yeah. we'll be fine and i you know and it, it usually works out
0: You know, and the fact on the, you know, it doesn't help for that one case, but even the person that got the victory against you knows they're not going to, they've been in battle with you. They know that may or may not happen again. They know that you, you could have easily kicked their butt too, and they're going to pay you more next time.
2: Well, they know that I'm not just going to accept any money that they throw at us. They do know that. And I'll tell people, And like when we go to a mediation, we're not winging it or anything like that. We know exactly what the numbers are, what the goal is and how we're going to get there. And so and if it doesn't work out, which is very often, fine, no problem. Uh but the reality is we're not winging it. We have a strategy for negotiating and we're going to try to get to certain numbers and we know what our authority is.
0: Yep. And so I give myself one night to mourn a loss. I just I go and I typically, I mean, it's probably not the healthiest healthiest thing to do, but I buy a very expensive bottle of red wine to show that I can still afford it. It's just a little psychological thing. I don't drink the whole thing by myself, but I'll, I'll you know I will have a nice meal. I'll I will drink the red wine and say it sucks that I lost this case, but I'm still here. And the next day, I find another my next big project to work on, and I dive right in. And it sounds weird, but it's just like I, I said goodbye to that case. I'm going to go to the next
2: one. I've never found anything to do that that relieves the pain. Um, but but I I can say is that with, with lawyers, it's there's never really a day in our profession. That you'd say, "Oh, everything's perfect. Everything's going great. Oh, every- I'm sailing," and I hear that so much from other attorneys, and I frankly get sick of hearing it. It's like, "Oh, everything's perfect with my law firm." It's like, <laughs> "Wait a minute. The courts have been closed for 15 months. How could everything be perfect for your your? I mean, if you're a trial lawyer, the pandemic really sucked. Yeah, I mean, that's the reality. I mean, for my law firm, our revenue and income hasn't been nearly the same during the pandemic as what it was before." But the reality is we're still alive and kicking. So that's all good. Right. And and that's the reality is I, I I just don't enjoy the BS that I hear from so many attorneys in our profession about how great it is, because I, frankly, I just don't view them as really trial attorneys when they say that, because uh, if, if I don't have a trial date, my cases are not getting resolved. That's just Same the here. way it works, you know, so.
0: Same here. And you know, oftentimes if I don't have a jury getting selected or about to get selected, I don't get real offers. I mean, they, exactly. they, they play games with you. They, you know, will you take this? Will you take that and make you sit on it, make your client sweat it out. And until you're down there kicking their butt, it's just really hard to get what's fair.
2: Well, it's very hard. And if the defense ever says, Hey, let's put off the trial date. So we'll have more time to negotiate a settlement. No, that's not how it works. There's nothing that's going to result in a settlement more than a sitting jury. And so having the trial hanging over the defense, we have one policy in our law firm. We will never agree to an adjournment or any delays of anything, not just trials of of depositions. And I triple and double book trial dates. I mean, I I have double book trial dates coming up. The reality is, um that's just the way it is for our practice and we we prepare and what we use is what's called the 12 week plan to prepare for trial and that is in my book the law firm of your dreams so week as we go 12 weeks before a trial week by week we go through what the secretary is going to do what the paralegal is going to do what the attorney is going to do and we put it in week by week in the 12 week plan and so by the time we get to the trial everything's done Mem- awesome. motions and limine have been served verdict sheets the whole thing it's all done and over with because what i found michael is in our cases week by week we do essentially the same thing with almost every case there's very little difference deposition summaries we we videotape depositions we have to uh, create the excerpts of the videos and so that they can be played at trial and things like that it's all the same focus groups well we always do that so let's get that planned out 12 weeks before trial rather than the week before trial so it, that is the best way of relieving uh, anxiety about a trial is to be prepared.
0: Yeah, I've been, you know, Mallory's and I have to give Mallory, my partner, a lot of credit for that, because I, that doesn't come naturally to me, but it comes naturally to her and working together. Uh, we're a lot more prepared. I've even started taking a day off the week before trial hmm. uh, and and going to bed the weekend before trial at a decent hour, because at some point, if you prepared, if you're ready, if you're, you know, all your motions and stuff are done. At some point, the sleep and being well-rested and being focused is more useful than having burned the midnight oil a couple more nights, if you know it cold weeks in advance. But Absolutely. to do that, you have to start, like you said, the 12-week plan. In fact, that, that's, I require a meeting with me between 60 and 90 days before trial to plan it out with my lawyers. And so sounds like we're, we're at a similar place. Um, mm-hmm. We have like a written report that's due 90 days before trial where you're listening out what your plan is, but then there's a sit down with Michael, uh, whether I'm trying the case with you or not, to go brainstorm. And you know, it's just institution Some things you can get well in the system, some things talking it out, I think, helps. And so part of the system is that meeting.
2: Yeah, one of the biggest failures of law firms, Michael, that I see is there's no collaborating or brainstorming. It's sort of, like, I worked for a big firm at one point, but the attorneys didn't collaborate. The yeah. staff didn't collaborate. It was sort of like everyone was in their own silo doing their own thing. What an enormous waste of knowledge that is. But what if we get all get into a great a big room and we start brainstorming solutions for the case? How do we handle this? And so like in our profession, when, when, when you have a trial and you stand up for, in front of the jury for the first time, what is the most important thing that you can do? Well, screw your notes, throw the notes in the garbage can and bond with the jury. But more importantly than that, You need to build credibility with the jury. And how do you do that? Well, it's really hard, but if you share your biggest danger point with them. So, for example, I represent a a guy, Curtis, who was a passenger in a tractor trailer. He was seat belted when he was killed in the wreck. After the crash, they did no autopsy. Turns out the drug screen showed this guy, Curtis, had cocaine throughout his blood system everywhere. We are not going to have any explanation. We're not going to have any excuse. And we have no idea how that happened. And if you feel, based upon what I've just told you, that you know maybe we should just be done and over with here, I, that's no problem at all. How do you feel about this? And what they might say is, well, wait a minute. What the hell does cocaine in, in his system have to do with a seat belted passenger in a, in a truck wreck? The other trucker was at fault. This guy, you know, okay, maybe he had some issues with drugs, but the reality, he didn't deserve this to happen to him. They will rally to your defense when you reveal early on your most vulnerable danger point. And so I'm very big in treating jury selection just like it's a cocktail party. Just you're hanging out, you're just talking to them, and you're trying to get them to open up. But what you're really trying to do is not just create a rapport, but you're trying to build credibility by revealing The biggest problem that you have with your case early on, because if you do that, they're going to be like, wait a minute, this guy is honest with us. He's not pulling punches here. So maybe we can open up with him a little bit. So that one case I was telling you about that I lost a defense verdict, it was the second time I tried the case. The first time we were unable to pick a jury because of 55 prospective jurors in the jury pool, all 52 of the 55 got bounced because of favoritism and prejudice for the defense. Wow, That's how it is in conservative venues in the state and not just in New York, everywhere. And so the reality is, how did I get 52 out of 55 jurors bounced? Because I was real with them. I said, look, you know, the reality is I see a lot of cases and this is true. I get a lot of cases every day. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. They, I can't believe they're even calling with this stuff yeah and, and and so and it's the truth i mean so many people and i have a high degree of cynicism when people call with a new case and you may be sitting there thinking the same thing like oh man this is another one of these med mal cases oh yeah yeah and i have to tell you something that's how i start out too what you're really what you're really revealing to them is that you're not that much different from them you have the same vulnerabilities the same anxieties and fears that they have and, you know, if they don't want to be there, what we have to do is try as quickly as we possibly can coach them out of there and find a way that, you know, it, it's it's a great privilege serving on a jury. It's also a great privilege in not serving when it's not the right case for you. And so giving them permission to say, hey, you know what? I'm not really sure about this. I, I, I'm not. I, my cousin is a doctor and I kind of like doctors. So. Yeah, you're gently walking them out the door. You don't want people on a jury who don't want to be there.
0: Absolutely not. And one thing I love about that technique of uh, of revealing your warts or your worst problems first is if you're suggesting reasons why it doesn't matter, it's going to be looked upon skeptically. If you, if you reveal your problem and they come up with your solutions they're going to hold on to them because they're their ideas they're their solutions or they're at least coming from one of the other jurors it's just so much more not only are you much more credible but the arguments are so much more credible
1: enjoying the episode do you wish you had trial lawyer nation on the go well wish no more the trial lawyer nation app is available now exclusively on ios devices access our entire podcast library create a favorites list search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcast for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go.
2: No, absolutely. And and uh, Michael, in, in one case uh, jur- during jury selection, I mentioned an issue and I probed a bit into a person's background, a little bit, you know, a health situation. I felt like I had to on that case. And the person got up and she said, you're a scum. I hate you. And I hope you die. Wow. <laughs> so, oh, no. And so she storms out of there. She's crying with tears all over the place. And then at that point, the court clerk stood up and I said, we're adjourned for the day. And I'm like, oh, no. So I I went to bed that night thinking with my, my jury trial consultant. I'm like, oh, we're screwed. We just I just lost the case. So I show up the next day and the other jurors show up and they're like, that woman was so nasty and rotten to you. I could not believe what you said. <laughs> what they were doing, Michael, is they were rallying to my defense Yeah, because what they felt was what I did was not really inappropriate and the person overreacted to what I said. So, you know, that, that's the nice thing about showing vulnerability is a lot of times they will respond and rally around you rather than, to, than putting a dagger in your back. They're going to try to support you.
0: And I think it's a mindset, mindset thing. When you trust the group, then the group will help you. If you don't trust the group to help you and you think that they're out to screw you, then, then they won't help you because you don't trust them to do it. Absolutely. That makes any sense. And, and I'll, even if they're not going to help you, just going in there with the mindset that they will makes it more pleasant and at least maximizes the chance that they will.
2: The best four words, Michael in jury selection, please tell me more. <laughs> yeah, a, You know, Hey, let them talk. <laughs> Let them have their say, show compassion. And as they're talking, nod your head, because if you nod your head, they will just keep talking. And when they're done, don't say a word because they will fill the void and they'll just keep talking. And all of a sudden you've got a party atmosphere and jury selection. So really, it's sort of like you're the ringmaster who's just opening the doors, making them feel comfortable and letting them have their say.
0: Yeah. And getting over that fear of silence, uh, you know, the silence is a vacuum that someone will fill, but you know, you'll sit there and you'll throw something out there, especially at the beginning. It takes a while to get people talking. Uh, so you ask something and then it's silent and it's probably, if you're an outside observer, it's like seven to 10 seconds. of It's not that big of a deal, but when you're waiting for that juror, the first juror to start talking to you, it's like an hour. And it is so tempting to fill that void yourself and start and keep talking. And then they don't have to. Uh, But if you just sit there and trust someone, someone will save you. Someone will start that conversation. And once the jurors break the dam, then they feel comfortable talking and you get it happening. If you don't shut up, uh, you know, and just learn to embrace the silence until someone else speaks, uh, it never happens.
2: Well, that's also a really powerful tool for direct examination, opening statements is, is, when you have something that's really powerful to say, you're, the, the power statement, just try to pause for six seconds. You'll never get there, but just try. Try to pause, and it just adds so much power to what you just said when you're able to pause for that long. Or if a witness says something that you're, one of your witnesses makes a really strong statement, let it soak in by the pause. The pause adds so much power, and it's such an underused thing by trial attorneys So I I agree completely with you. It's about creating credibility with jurors and then using the power of pause in speech to really emphasize key words.
0: Absolutely. And I've really worked on slowing down when I talk, even though I usually have a compressed time period, like 15 to 30 minutes to give an opening, for example. And what I've learned is if I trust the jury, why did I used to talk so fast? because I had to get it all in because I didn't trust them that if I just gave my best points, I would win. I had to try to get every little thing in. And now I just, I tell my story in the time that I have and I trust that they're going to listen. And, and, you know, obviously there's some more things you have to get in through the trial sometimes, but it's uh, I've had a much better win rate since I've done that. And and again, it, it just goes to, you know, having the mindset of, I trust the jury. I trust my story. I don't have to get every little word in because really, when you try to do that, you talk so fast they don't get any of what you said or they don't no, get half of it.
2: They don't understand. No, they don't get any of it. Actually, yeah. <laughs> so what? What the verbal communication is? I don't think hardly any of it's retained. Uh, like five percent, maybe less than that. But what is retained is non-verbal communication. So anything that you can do non-verbally to show them something is so much more powerful than the verbal language. So I've seen people, I've, I've seen other attorneys try to do an opening statement, at least in part through nonverbal communication, psychodrama, things like this. And it's so powerful. It's really a cool concept to use your body, your face, and and using expressions on your face, the flow of speech and different things to elicit reaction and responses. Because a courtroom is it's drama, it's theater, and you have to harness theater, you have to embrace it much more than than anything else, because it's the drama and the nonverbal communication that will be remembered.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And your nonverbal has to be consistent with your verbal. Uh and that's another problem, but not believing it or not having the mindset or not trusting the jury. If your words are saying one thing, but your gestures and your tone are saying something different, right? Uh, exactly. They're going to their their gestures and tone will be so much more persuasive than your words.
2: No, absolutely. And it's easy to say these things, and and if somebody were to say, "Well, hey, uh, great speech, great this," but the reality is, they, they might say, "How? Wh- what course can I take to do this?" like you know what uh there's a lot of things you can do but the reality is there is no substitute for experience you want to learn how to be a trial attorney the best thing you can do is to try cases if you want to learn how to give the speech of your life the best thing you can do is give speeches uh because every single time you do it you're going to be learning a little bit more and refining what you've done like for example if i give a presentation about marketing what i found is these Every every lawyer at every every seminar you go to, they'll have a bunch of PowerPoints. And it's like, nobody's reading or retaining any of that. So just screw the PowerPoint. Just go ahead and connect with people. Find out what what their biggest fears are. Get into the audience. Connect with them. Become their friend. Let them know that you care rather than spitting out a bunch of data that nobody's going to remember. And so the reality is just connecting with people is so much more important.
0: Absolutely. Now, you also, besides running your own law firm, you've mentioned you do some other work with lawyers who want to better their careers and their practices and their abilities.
2: Well, the thing is, we, we run two masterminds, com and plaintiffselite.com. They are masterminds where we have some of the elite attorneys in the country who get together and help each other. But one of the things is, there's only so much I can do to help somebody. But if you harness all of these different people from across the country, attorney, high achieving attorneys, and they're all coming together. Our last in-person mastermind was in Maui and uh, it was phenomenal. And we had incredible uh, event. John Morgan was a guest for our mastermind at Morgan Morgan. And we had just great people there. Our next mastermind is September 10th in Washington, DC. And it's uh, hosted by Price Benowitz, Seth Price, good friend. He, he hosts the mastermind in DC. And then in February, February 10th of this next year, we have a mastermind in the Dutch Caribbean of island of Curacao. Oh, wow. And then April 10th or 11th, we have a mastermind in New York City. So they're phenomenal. And it, what happens at a mastermind? Michael, you'd say, I'm coming with the biggest problem that my law firm has in marketing or management. And then you bring your partner, a paralegal, maybe a marketing director, and you, you put your problem out on the table with a group of high achieving attorneys, and they go to bat trying to solve the solutions. They brainstorm, collaborate. They say, "What have you done this? What about this? And then you leave there and you're like, I've got some real life examples of what to do with this situation that I didn't have before I came in here. And it's so cool. And then the real fun begins the day after the mastermind because that's where you're connecting with all these different lawyers. And they're like, hey, did you do this? What happened when we talked about this? And 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 so it's very troubling if you don't do the things that you say you're going to do. So you're held accountable. <laughs> that's and that's awesome. the power of a mastermind. It's it's Napoleon Hill called it. It's a group of people who are collaborating, sharing, and they have nothing in their 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 mind other than trying to help you build a better law firm. It is such a powerful concept.
0: That's awesome. And we'll have a link in the show notes. Uh the how to sign up. If you're interested in learning more about the masterminds, how about your books? If someone was interested in getting one or more of your books, where can they get them?
2: Well, they could go to Amazon, but I would not suggest that. Uh, if, they not? Email, if they email me, I'll send them free signed copies of both, both the law firm of your dreams, which is my new book. It took four and a half years to write. It's about marketing and managing the law firm of your dreams and the power of a system, which was my first book written in 2013, which has all of the policies and procedures that my law firm has. So if you wanted to know how our firm operates, it's right there. Everything you need to know. And if your staff doesn't know what to do, it's all there. The other And so I'll give you my personal email address. If you request both of these books, I'll, I'll mail them free signed copies. It's the letter J, Fisher, F-I-S-H-E-R, lawyer at gmail.com or if you call myself 518-265-9131, I'll be happy to mail the books to you and with my compliments. The other thing, Michael, that I'm more than happy to give your group, and I, I could send this by email to you, is access to all of our policies and procedures of my law firm or an online website that's called fisherpedia.com. Oh, wow. and I can give the login credentials. So everything we do, if you you have a new employee that you're signing up today. Here's the offer letter. They want have questions about paid time off. Here it is. They will know your law firm better than you do. We use a company for medical records called Chart Squad. Now you want to know how to get the records? Here's the video tutorials in two to three minute segments. Everything we do, we videotape and we put into Fisherpedia and all of it. there. I mean, there's certain pages that are password protected, but the rest of it is available to anyone with the appropriate login. So I'm happy to share that.
0: That's great. Now, you know, our audience does include some non-personal injury lawyers. I know some of the people I have on the other side of cases like to listen to me. So just, you know, think whether that's something you want to share with the whole world, or just if you want to have some kind of screening, if you'd like to have some kind of screening, we could have where they could contact you to get the login. It's totally up to you.
2: No screening. Anyone okay. can have
0: it. Well, please do send it to us. And we will, again, we'll put it in the show notes. So just either go to the podcast app on iPhone or go to triallawyernation.com where we have all our show notes and all that information will be there. You are so generous and I do appreciate it. he really does send the books. I have them both in front of me on my desk and they are really good. Uh, and so I encourage everyone to do that. I'm totally convinced of that abundance mentality. It must pay returns, multiple uh, returns to you because- that's just the way I've seen the way the world works.
2: Well, it's been great. And and I appreciate it. And Lynn McCraw, who was the pa- uh, the outgoing president of the Texas trial lawyers, he, he is in our mastermind and he mm. is a phenomenal guy and he'll yeah. do anything for anyone. I mean, you could just call him on a moment's notice and he'd say, hey, what can I do for you? And here's what we're doing. It's just such a, like a humble, good person. And he'd be like, hey, this is what's working for me. This is no, what's not working for me. What, what are you doing with this problem? So Lynn is an example of a generous, growth-minded guy who will do anything. And he understands, Michael, it's not just about what happens in a courtroom. It's about the business of law. And the mastermind will expose people to people like Seth Price in D.C., Lynn McCraw in, in Texas, and all of these other people who just come together, regular folk, who say, hey, I need help with the business of law because in law school, no one taught us a thing about how to run and manage a law firm. And we're thrown into a law firm. We're like, what do I do now? I got no idea. I mean, I was I was fired, Michael, from my my job where I'd spent my whole career at a catastrophic injury law firm. And I'm like, "Okay, I got I got three little kids and a wife. What do I do now? <laughs> and yeah. I was like, okay, the first thing I'm gonna do is document all of the systems and policies. And I put it into a book, The Power of a System, because I knew it wasn't enough to have the policies in my mind. I needed to share it with our staff. So they they knew how we should function and what we should do. And that's why I've done and the the what I decided was why not just give it to everybody and let them see if they can build the law firm of their dreams using these policies. Because the law is a wonderful profession and I love it. And I just think it's the greatest thing in the world. But we need to do a better job as lawyers. And you're doing it, Michael. But we need to do a better job in general, helping each other, helping each other grow and having the growth mindset where we're not just trying to keep back all the stuff we know, we're trying to share it with everyone. And I think that you do a really nice job with that with this podcast. And your guests are great too.
0: It is one of my core values at my firm that we, you know, constantly seek to learn and improve as one, but two is we share what we learn. And that's not just internally, but I've just found that uh, what I've gained from all these interactions is much greater than anything I've given. I'm just by sharing, by collaborating, I've got to learn from awesome people like you, like a lot of the other people we've had on here. Uh, and I hope everyone else listening uh, is getting something good out of this, too. I bet they are. So thank you so much for joining us today. And I encourage everyone, please email John and get copies of his books uh, because they're really good.
2: Well, it's been my privilege and thank you for the work that you're doing for our profession. I really appreciate that.
0: Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive plaintiff lawyer only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation.
1: Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D E L I S I at CowanLaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.